1: Time for the HN Podcast. I am John Miller. Wanted to just say a special thank you to our two sponsors, Heartland Flagpoles and Flags. You can visit them online at heartlandflags.com. And as always, Exile Brewing Company. Now, to the podcast. For
0: one more beer for me, Exile
1: podcast with Miller and Dace going to talk this first episode of this week talk about Iowa's win against North Texas 31 to 14 as always I've spent a good deal of time over the weekend literally talking about this in the instant reaction podcast Uh, so if you just want to hear you know me talking for my 20 minutes worth of thoughts about the game you can go there I'll have some thoughts as well in this podcast, but let's let Steve have uh, his whack at this. And I, I, I know you love me, but I doubt you listen to my instant reaction podcast, so uh, none of your stuff is going to be tainted anyway. What did you think of that game?
0: I mean, I, I thought it's a typical sandwich game. Um, you know, you're coming off an emotional road win against your in-state rival. You've got a top five team, prime time audience coming in next week. I mean, Iowa just wasn't going to be at its best. I think you and I both had a minimal amount of points on this game in our uh, in our confidence yeah. pool because it just was a matter of uh, just you know what level of efficiency Iowa was going to have. You're just it's not the NFL, um, you know, sandwich games and things of that nature in the NFL aren't as big of a deal. We're, we're emotions not as much of a part of the game as it is in college football. So you, you throw in that you throw in arguably the worst penalty call I've ever seen in my entire life um, and some key injuries. And um, I think that latter part there is probably determines the meaning of this game because of who the next game is against really who the next two games are against really. Um, So I I think that's probably the bigger story here is what the status of those guys happens to be because, you're going up against a team that uh, I don't know that man one through 80, 80, and you're not playing 85 guys. So let's, that's kind of a cop-out analysis, but let's say man one through uh, 22. I don't really think they're all that much more talented than Iowa, Um, but they're sort of the reverse of what the Hawkeyes have been in the past. You know, we've done, we've made this point on this podcast and in previous years that, Iowa's lack of explosiveness on offense in in past years. Now that's not been the case so far this year, where you know Nathan Stanley is doing a Chuck Hartley impression right now. But Iowa's lack of explosiveness on offense typically really lessens its margin for error when every game, every week, and the you know in, in, is twenty four twenty one. Twenty to seventeen, etc. Now Iowa, so far this year, has shown a level of explosiveness on offense. We really haven't seen since you know the o9 team or, or the 2010 team. But um, um, Penn State definitely has that, and, and so I don't think I don't think they're any better than Iowa in the trenches. In fact, I would probably say Iowa's better. Uh, I don't think they're that much more talented than Iowa, man. One through twenty-two, but the level expo- of explosiveness that they possess. Um, I mean, everybody knows Saquon Barkley. Mike Geseki is a future pro, All-American caliber tight end, a guy that gets down the field, particularly against defenses that put eight in the box to stop to stop Saquon Barkley. Is everything all right there?
1: Yeah, everything's good.
0: Okay, I got totally distracted there. There was felt like I heard, thought I heard somebody moving a whole bunch of stuff around. I don't know if he had a problem or not. I'm sorry. I, what, what, point, what point was I even making? Do you remember? Talked about know. Man
1: 22, Saquon Barkley, obviously, is different.
0: Okay. I'm try to remember where I'm at here. Um, I'll just reset everything I just said. I'll just do it quicker. Man 1 through 22, I don't really think Penn State's that much better. Um, I think they have a level of explosiveness that um, uh, you know Iowa typically has not had, but so far this season has shown. You know, with Nathan Stanley's out there doing kind of a Chuck Hartleave impression, and of course you have that dynamic backfield depending on their health situation. I'm sure you can give us an update on that. But that Penn State is, really, I, I would say Iowa's better in the trenches than Penn State is. But with Saquon Barkley, Trace McSorley, Mike Gusecki, who I think is a future pro tight end, there's a level of explosiveness there that even if you contain them and it's 24 to you know 17 at the end of a game or and, and Or 24 to 20 And you're protecting a lead It just takes one bad angle One pass in space For Penn State to do to Iowa Very similarly What Iowa, Iowa did to Iowa State Two weeks ago with Akram Wadley And that's why it, It's really it's, it's more important than it typically is For Iowa Given its style of play To have those explosive skill players there Because this is the most explosive team You're going to face I don't think it's the most talented team you're going to face, but I think it's the. Because you have Ohio State on the schedule, but I think it's the most explosive team. It, it's the. It is the team on Iowa's schedule that um, you can play really well, and it just isn't enough because they've got two or three guys that just can blow up your game plan at any particular point in time. This is something that not even you know the the, the number three Penn State team Iowa beat several years ago. You know, I think it was it was a Derek Mitchell, is what I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was an okay pro. I know my Lions drafted him, so I watched him a lot in the pros. I mean, he was, he was an explosive player. Nothing like what Saquon Barkley brings to the table. Nothing. Uh, so that's why, if you're Iowa, you need your explosive playmakers on the field because you could even get Penn State in your house to play your tempo, your style of football, and still – it's a one-possession game at the end, and you just can't contain those guys for four quarters the way you could a typical, even-talented football team. Well,
1: you, you went to the Penn State card, so I don't want to mess up the continuity of the conversation. I, I went literally minutes before you and I started recording this podcast. I think it was 845. I thought, you know, I'm curious what Iowa's record is against top five teams you know, in the last decade. Because you know, I, I saw a lot of chatter on Twitter this weekend. Oh, you know, Iowa's you know typically rises up against you know the big teams. I'm like, okay, let's let me. So I looked at every one of Iowa's games against ranked opponents dating back to the 2008 season, which is now ten seasons ago. Since this mm-hmm. year is underway, mm-hmm. Iowa's played 26 games against ranked teams since then. They are four and three against top five ranked teams.
0: That's really good, actually.
1: Yeah, it's really good. Four and four against top ten, and then five and thirteen against teams ranked eleven through twenty-five. So overall, they're nine and seventeen, but they're four and three against top five teams. And those games against top five teams last year, number three Michigan, they won fourteen to thirteen. Um, Twenty fifteen, Michigan State uh, in the Big Ten championship game, they lost thirteen sixteen. Uh, number 5 Stanford in 2015 they've lost 16-45 to number 4 Ohio State in 2013 they lost that one 24-34 number 5 Michigan State in 2010 they won 37-6 number 9 Ohio State in 2010 they lost 17-20 number 5 Penn State in 09 they won 21-10 and number 3 Penn State in 08 where they won 24-23 to um, they're average score in those ranked those games against ranked foes Iowa averages 19.5 points per game and the opponent averages 22.8 now i haven't i haven't dove deeper into the top 10 averages because you you called me when that happened and it, you know teams from the past don't suit up today but i do know that these coaches Brian's been involved in some games Kirk's obviously been there throughout Phil Parker you know the coaches can draw on those, you know, those victories and remind these guys that this is just another team coming into play. This is this week's opponent. Obviously, you got a tackle cleaner against Saquon Barkley. You, you can't, you can't let anybody beat you over the top against Trace McSorley. But I, I don't know that Iowa will be all that intimidated by this. And I think the setting, Kinnick Stadium, it's it's been the site for some pretty some pretty good wins against some top five opponents.
0: Well, I don't know why I would be intimidated at all I mean this Penn State team though it's different than even the Michigan team you beat last year the Michigan team you beat last year is a lot more talented man one through 85 than this Penn State team is but we didn't have anybody like Saquon Barkley no, no that's why that's that's why you know I mean our, we had two or three plays for touchdowns or first downs that would have won the game. Our, we didn't have playmakers that could do what he could do. Well, Steve, you guys beat them last year 49-10. to 10. Everybody brings up how injured their linebackers were. Their linebackers weren't, weren't on the offensive line. They could not block us. Okay, And really, Iowa last year could not block us. But we lacked that playmaker that when Iowa got us into the rock fight, which is which is, and and the twenty-two to nineteen average score
1: uh-huh.
0: is what is a rock fight. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Okay, when Iowa got us into the rock fight, Amara Darbo is a really good college player. And he's making money now, and so is Jay Hugh. Those guys are really good players. They but but we didn't have the guy that when I when when Iowa missed an angle, our guys got ten or fifteen yards. You miss an angle against Saquon Barkley, dude. He is running to Cedar Falls. That's the difference. So. I I do think it I I don't see if he's healthy and in the game. Iowa can win a 13 to 12 game against Penn State. That's a, that's a game where we get down to the end of the game and it might be 13 to 12 Iowa, but you end up losing it 19 to 30, 20 to 13. You right. <laughs> know so you need you have one of those guys though, okay? And that guy you sort of discovered him in the game against us last year. How many weeks did we sit here on this podcast and I was clamoring for them to, in, to incorporate him more into the passing game to get some explosiveness. And where they really first began unleashing that um, was the game against Michigan. And, and now you have that in Akron Wadley. That's why I think he's every bit the playmaker Saquon Barkley is. I think, I think McSorley is, is, is such an effective dual-threat quarterback that what he, the way he presses a defense – puts more stress on you than your traditional pro style passer at an iowa Mm -hmm. does and so i think that 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 makes saquon barkley look even better than he actually is okay but wadley i think is every bit as explosive as saquon barkley is every bit as versatile as he is and that's why i think his health goes a long way in mitigating that saquon barkley factor because if if wadley's healthy the I, the Penn State coaches are saying the same thing about Iowa that we're sitting here saying about Penn State, which is, hey, guys, you can't let up. We can bottle these guys up for four quarters and this guy gets loose on one end around, or, or one, you know, flat p- pass out in the flat. We miss one gap. This guy houses us and we lose. Iowa has that kind of player in Akram Wadley that they really haven't had you know it's a Tavian Banks Ronnie Harmon kind of a difference maker and I think his health is is key in determining the outcome of this game
1: Kirk Ferentz saying on Sunday that um, James Butler will be out through the bye week which is the middle of October Uh, he had an elbow injury but Kirk was very optimistic that everyone else is going to be okay and likely back by Wednesday So let's hope that's the case for Akram Wadley. Wadley, um, gosh, I can't recall if he came back in the second half or not. I don't know that he did. I don't think that he did, actually. So certainly didn't have a lot of wear and tear on him from that game, and it looked like it was an ankle. Probably it just seemed like he could have played if they needed him, but they didn't need him. So you're right, Iowa will need that. And you know, I th- I'd, I'd rather have Butler available than not. And I am not just sitting here saying something to try to make lemonade out of lemons. But and I last night when I was going through some of my game film cutups on Twitter, I, I posted one of these, and I've been saying it in games on Twitter and, and elsewhere the last couple of weeks is James Butler is still getting comfortable running. In the Iowa offensive running game style, last year he took a lot of shotgun handoffs um, mm-hmm. he is not, he's he's i don't want to say that he's not patient, but he's not as patient as he would be if he got more reps in the system he's missing holes he's he, his vision on cutbacks is not there because he's not been used to running in this style of offense where you have to be aware of the cutback lane because of the flow of the zone blocking scheme. He's a reliable, strong runner that you really want to have there as a as a tandem to what Wiley can do, but he hasn't he hasn't blown me away. I'll just say that.
0: Well, I, I think you're making an important observation. You know, James Butler comes from Nevada, and for people that have not you know followed Nevada football, um, you know, Chris Alt, I think is his name, is is sort of their Hayden Fry, and he's in the college football hall of fame by the way uh maybe another analogy might be a fisher deberry when fisher deberry went to air force 35 years ago he brought he was the first of the service academies to go to the triple option and air force went from perennially being the worst service academy program to in his second season they finished in the top 10 in the country and went 12 and 1 in 1985 and they were a regular in uh the top Top 15, top 25, pretty much all of our lives. They dropped off the last few years he was there. Trey Calhoun comes in there that runs the same system. He's only had one out of 10 seasons that he's not taking them to a bowl game. And 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 where that ties into Nevada is Nevada was really the school under Chris Alt. He's kind of the Fisher DeBerry of the pistol offense. This is kind of his thing. And it's, it's, it's kind of been passed down. It was passed down to his eventual successor there turned Colin Kaepernick into an NFL quarterback uh Jim Harbaugh fell in love with the system playing against it when he was at Stanford uh drafted Colin Kaepernick with the 49ers they incorporate. they were the first team to go to the pistol you see more and more of it in the NFL you see the uh, the Falcons running some of it the, the Patriots run it a lot well it's a lot different running out of a pistol diametrically different than running out Of a zone blocking scheme in a pro style set. I mean, you can look at a spread offense. You know, the zone read spread offense in college football is not any different than the old Veer that we watched in the 70s and 80s or the Wishbone that we watched in the 60s and 70s. They're just, it's the same offense. It's really Nebraska's offense under Tom Osborne out of a shotgun, is really what the zone read offense is. Um, But the pistol offense, is something that there's really no derivative of in college football. And it, and, it's, and it created its own terminology called an RPO, which is a run pass option. And so obviously, if you have an option right away at the line of scrimmage, not, not an option in terms of, do I give it to the up back or pitch it? But an option in terms of what the actual play will be, the essence of the play. Are we running it? Are we passing it? All right that requires quick decision making by everybody everybody on every consist- and it's not just well steve why is it different than a triple option it's not just the running back doesn't know if he's getting the ball the running back doesn't know if he's got a lead block or a pass block and he doesn't know if he's getting the ball so what does that have to do with this conversation now this offense the, the pistol offense if you can run it well is lethal and, and this is where a lot of the SEC coaches in a defensive oriented conference, Nick Saban, for example, complaining about the illegal man downfield uh, stats or, or rule in college football compared to the NFL. In college football, you can go a full five yards downfield before they before they throw that flag, which means the quarterback can literally run up to the line of scrimmage before deciding whether or not to throw, and his linemen aren't downfield. That puts an incredible amount of stress. Johnny Manziel won a Heisman Trophy running this offense. Puts an incredible amount of stress on a defense. This is the offense James Butler comes out of. He comes out of the school that is essentially the founding father of this pistol offense, that has taught it to college in pro like Lavella Edwards taught the west coast offense to bill walsh and all kinds of people in the nfl he he basically taught this to people in college and pro football mm-hmm. well this is all based on quick decision making catch the defense off balance well john that's the exact opposite of the system that iowa runs as you know i remember when we went, when sean we talked the first couple weeks about sean green's lack of patience right dude went on and when the yep, joke walker exactly. away. okay this is, and you can't replicate this there's no film study you really have to be in concert with your offensive line you, there's a rhythm to it and and you have to and there's an anticipation there's a chemistry to it it's you know similar to a basketball team and it just requires reps and timing and i don't know that i will miss him all that much but this injury probably couldn't come at a worse time for him in terms of gathering that level right. of timing and, and precision with a blocking scheme that is, couldn't be any different than what he did at Nevada.
1: Yeah, no doubt. You talk about the run-pass option. Um, do you recall the play on Iowa's first drive where easily fumbled and the ball went out of the back of the end zone? Mm-hmm. Um, he was lined up in the slot and Amir Smith-Marset was lined up outside. And Iowa has probably done this four or five times thus far this year in three games. They're instituting at least some basic tenets of the RPO, the run-pass option. That was a run play. That was called a run play. And obviously Stanley has the opportunity to throw out of that because basically if he looks out and he sees two DBs um, outside, then he's going to go to it. And Easily then just drifted out to the flat Stanley hit it Marsett Smith Marsett made a great block all of Iowa's linemen were firing out for a run Akram Wadley was the running back and he came up expecting a handoff, but Stanley instead fired it out So Iowa is beginning to implement some aspects of this but not anywhere near what you see out of a pure uh, pistol set so this this that, that was probably, Steve, one of the bigger positives I took away from the North Texas game. That was just a really weird game. The first half reminded me of the Tennessee Tech game from like 2011 or something, the first game of the year when it was delayed by lightning. It just felt really, really weird because of all the, official, the officiating that was involved in this particular game. Um, but then in the second half, Iowa came out and did what Iowa did. Iowa scored 13 touchdowns this year. Nine of those touchdown drives have been 75 yards or longer. And nearly all of those have been like nine or ten play drives. They had a 16-play drive yesterday in the second half. That was mm. 15 runs and one pass and ate up eight minutes of clock. And I love that. Brian Ferentz, you know, so, some coordinators will get too cute, feeling like they got to, okay, we've got them set up for play action now. Well, you know what? You're kicking their teeth in running the ball. How about you just keep running it until they stop you? And they never did. I think Brian Ferentz, through three games, through one quarter of this season, I'd give him an A based upon what I've seen thus far. I think he's done a masterful job.
0: I agree with you. And, and, you know, I talked a lot about this before the year, that this was going to be a a theme I was interested in watching and monitoring all year because there's just – so many layers to this story beyond the scrutiny that goes along with being the offensive coordinator you know, at Iowa to begin with. Um, and then you throw in Ken O'Keefe returning. It's, you're the coach's son and you've never done this. You've never called a play in a game before. So there's an added layer of pressure that goes along with that as well. Um, I was just going to be fascinated to follow this throughout the season here's the number one thing that I see because you know you mentioned those time-consuming drives but we've also seen Iowa with some explosion plays with Akron Wadley as what as well there, there's two paradigms of offense in football one is to score as many points as you need and the other is to score as many points as you can and most programs score as many points as they need and most coaches are risk-averse and there's really there's not so much a right way or a wrong way um as much as you've just got to know what kind of team you have and uh, you can't necessarily be dogmatic about it one way or the other because if if you don't have a good defense and you're out there trying to score as many points as you can um you know you can lose every you can lose a lot of games 38 34 every bit as much you can lose a lot of games 24 21 but what i like about what brian ference has shown so far is he has shown a willingness to do both and really the entire era under kirk ference the mo has been to score as many points as you need now in kirk's defense you know the last couple of years under C.J. Bethard, we saw them do things like not automatically run out the clock with timeouts on the board, at, you know, at a minute and a half to go at halftime, before halftime, right? We did see that for how many years? So in the last couple of years, he he was already beginning to loosen up there a little bit. But that Brian, is – Brian Ferentz staff. Yep, and that may have something to do with it right there. You could be right about that, sure. there There is something to be said for – a younger guy, not particularly married to um, you know a, a, a dogma or ideology <laughs> that he kind of was reared in and <laughs> and see and and maybe, and this was and this is what if you're an Iowa fan, and you brought up this angle whenever I talked about this in the summertime. if you're an Iowa fan, what you're hoping is because his name is Brian Ference, he might be able to get away with some stuff. Or he might be able to persuade some things that Brian Smith could not, or Brian anybody else could not. And and so far, there's he is. You are seeing a level of, I guess the term I would use is um, aggression that we haven't typically seen, except for the year that Iowa returned all those guys in 2010 and was just loaded on offense.
1: Yeah, they have the horses to do it then, and, and that's typically not the case. But no, I, I agree with that, and it's it's really fun to see. And to me, you know, Brian Ferentz's hashtag attack all these years when he's been an assist an assistant um, position assistant before he was coordinator, it doesn't mean throwing you know fifteen vertical passes every game. It just means attacking weakness or perceived mismatches or keep going to the well like they did on that drive yesterday with right. 15 runs. That's attacking. Right. That is relentless attacking. And, you know, I, I think Brian wanted to score another touchdown with one minute left to go in the game. But Kirk, you know, didn't want to do that and took a knee, you know, would have made the score look a lot better. Um, you know, I had a guy come up to me today in church in, you know, rural Oklahoma Um, I shouldn't say rural It's probably about a town the size of West Des Moines A a suburb that we live in That's disconnected from Tulsa He's like, oh man Uh, And he's a sports writer for the local paper He's like, man, Iowa had a, a close call yesterday And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's just kind of the thing about what you get from your typical AP writers who just look in the box score and see the score and don't really Mm -hmm. know the game because it really wasn't all that close. It was actually pretty dominant. You know, it it should have been something like 45 to 14 if you don't have that fumble out of the back of the end zone and you score there at the end and you you don't let them score a point in the second half. And I really thought that that quarterback um, for. For North Texas, what was his name? Was it Miles or... Gosh, why can't I remember remember that? Um, Mason Fine. I wasn't even close. He only completed 16 passes the whole game. I thought it was like 30 after that I looked at the box score. They only had, I mean, total yards for the game. Iowa wound up with 435. They only had 301. Iowa ran 86 plays to 46 in this game. I mean, that's kicking somebody's teeth in. It's just... It didn't look all that good. And I, I yeah, think-
0: I, I, I can't stand that kind of analysis from people like that, frankly. I mean, nobody blows everybody out every week. You know, the other guys are on scholarship too. You know, Michigan and Alabama got the two marquee wins in those preseason showcase games in week one. Then they went home and played two straight home games where they were each between 25 and 40 point favorites. Neither one of them covered either one of those games the past two weeks. Okay, neither one of them did.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I mean so I mean I it's just that so that I mean that's do more homework than that, man. Well, that,
1: to do to more be, yeah, to be fair to this guy, it's not his job, but I, I to me I told him I'm like, you know, this is this is just what you see from sports information directors around the country who fill out these coaches poll ballots. And yeah. I think you know, a decent number of the AP guys, not all of, them, I think some of the AP guys take it Seriously, and actually, at least try to dive deeper into a box score, or make some calls, or emails, or whatever. But yeah, you know that'll that'll
0: thirty-one do. to fourteen. Is uh, it looks like I had we had some struggles, really? Now listen, I, I listen. If the guy's an Oklahoma State fan, I get it because right now, and every year, we'll talk a little bit about this in the next podcast. Every year, there's a team that comes that's that's somewhere in the bottom of the top twenty-five or just outside the top ten that people think could be this year's hot team. And then they just start just destroying people early on and you're like, "Well, they haven't really played anybody yet." But the but the margins are so impressive you can't ignore it. And then when they do start playing good teams, you see they're for real. And if if you're there in Oklahoma right now, it looks like Oklahoma State may be that team. Right. Okay? I mean, they they are they are outperforming they're they're the the Vegas number. They're outperforming the expectation level. They're they're they are playing like a team on a mission right now. But that aside, you know you just don't blow everybody out every week. And by the way, what is thirty one to fourteen? What what is that? I mean you're you're not running a four minute offense to kill the clock when it's thirty one to fourteen. You know what I'm saying? I mean I do Yeah. That, that stuff. Maybe I'm sensitive because I'm hearing that as a Michigan fan right now. But it's really starting that kind of stuff. I'm like, come on, man. Thirty one yeah. to fourteen.
1: Possibly, and also the 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 seven points, the last seven points that North Texas scored right before the half. If James Butler doesn't drop uh, an easy, an easily catchable pass on third down, Iowa gets a first down and runs out the clock, and they got seven in the game. So anyway, right. but you know what, doesn't matter. Iowa wins, and really for Iowa football, they're they're not gonna you know. It, it, I guess if they if they run the schedule, if they run the table, they'll be in the playoff. But that's what they're gonna have to do. So I'm not all. Worried about that too much. All right, we will. Um, we'll talk more about Iowa Penn State on Thursday when we make our predictions. I think Steve Iowa opened as a thirteen and a half point underdog in this one against Penn State, which is a pretty big number for Kinnipit. Last year, what was it? The the Michigan game opened like in the high teens and then moved yep. into the twenties. Yeah, I memory. told it.
0: Remember, I said all along, there's no way they were covering. That.
1: Yeah, it's a tough and number Penn, to cover, Kenneth.
0: Like I, I said last week, Penn State is is this year's Michigan in the Vegas line. They're the, they're the blue blood program with the massive fan base. They just can't set the numbers big enough. Keep that in mind.
1: Mm-hmm. No doubt about that. I was just looking here. I mean, Iowa against the top five teams, um, you know, that four and three record that I mentioned earlier, you know, they, lo- they lost by three to Ohio State. They lost, um, well, at home, I think that's it. I think every other, you know, they had Michigan State in 2010 at home. Ohio State in 2010 at home then Penn State at home in 2008 and then Michigan at home last year so uh, in the last 10 years I was 3-1 and at home against top 5 ranked teams so we shall see that'll do it for this installment of the HN Podcast Steve and I will be back again uh, tomorrow talking about the Big Ten and we are going to talk a lot about Nebraska's loss to Northern Illinois and Steve made a prediction on this podcast, back the day that Mike Riley was hired, in December of 2014. I happen to have the audio. I'll play some of the highlights. And then at the end of that uh, podcast, I'm going to play the entire 14-minute conversation Steve and I had in December of 2014 on how bad we thought that hire was. You'll want to hear, I think, how much Steve nailed this one. We'll do that tomorrow. Thanks for listening.